0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Hajar Yazdia, author of the book The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. Hajar, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I am so, you know, kind of logistically, I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. Um, But on a personal level, I'm also the mother of two and I grew up in Northern Virginia. And this is kind of one of the stories that I lay out in the preface of the book is that I am the daughter of Iranian political refugees. I was born in Germany myself. And so it's very much that experience of kind of being an outsider in predominantly white communities growing up that shaped the lens that I bring to sociology. And it's part of my sociological imagination, kind of understanding boundaries and these questions of belonging. So why do we feel like we belong in one place versus another? And so I think these are the questions that really come up in the book as well.
0: I feel it adds as well to the freshness of the topic, because it, you're you're talking about a subject about which a lot of people are superficially very familiar. We have a Martin Luther King holiday. We 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 see him invoked in memes and 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 sometimes in commercials and so forth. And and, and it's it, so he's he's people he's a figure with whom people have a degree of familiarity, and yet you approach him from a very interesting angle. What led you to choose this as a subject, and and what sort of turns did the project take as you were developing it
1: oh it's such a good question there were i mean this is a long project and it really was iterative i mean there are just so many moments where i had to kind of go back and reimagine what i was asking and the research design and all of this but initially the question that led me to the project was the reverse racism arguments that I saw emerging out of the Obama presidency. And so here was this moment when we get our first Black president, and it's this moment where everybody says maybe this is the beginning of a post-racial era. Maybe racism has officially ended, and, and this is really the kind of trajectory that we're taking now. It's gone all up from here. And instead, you see the rise of the Tea Party. You see all of this reactionary white lash, as some scholars call it, And for me, it was this question of how are we getting to this point of perceived white victimhood, first of all? And then as I started looking at that question more deeply, then it came this question of how come Dr. King is getting invoked in all of these conservative claims to white victimhood? How is it that his words are being turned on their head in that way? So that's really what initially was the entryway to thinking about these broader questions of, Collective memory and how it gets deployed as a political tool.
0: You begin this book by explaining how that collective memory developed. And it's something that people of a certain age, and I I would group myself among them, can remember uh, part of the process you described in your first chapter, about how we go from King as this uh, martyred but very controversial figure uh, in 1968 to this point in the 1980s where he becomes, uh, a, uh, he, he has a, his birthday is made a federal holiday. There is this extended process of state holidays. And you see, as you described in this first chapter, that, that it, I mean, you don't have quite that consensus of, of King as, as this, you know, great American figure you're, you're seeing instead this sort of a, a version of the contestedness that you described throughout the book.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, this was part of the revelation. I, I didn't even plan to go back and you know study this sort of initial King holiday. I thought the research would begin in the Obama era. And so that was one of the great surprises was that the story really does go back to the civil rights movement proper. And then for me, the story in the book begins with the institutionalization of the King holiday in 83. And I think it's those 15 years of debate over the King holiday that tell us so much about the kind of roots of this collective memory, the kind of initial ideological debates that continue to shape the way that we, you know, have conflicts over who King is today. So what the story really is, is, you know, for folks who don't know, the day after his assassination is the first time that Congressman John Conyers actually introduces the legislation for a King holiday. And of course, you know, it's going to be another 15 years before it gets picked up. So for a long time, it kind of gets poo-pooed and ignored. And even two months after the assassination, you have Coretta Scott King, King's wife and civil rights activist in her own right, and she founds the King Center to carry on his legacy. And so together with a small group of allies, including Shirley Chisholm, they're just working continuously every year to reintroduce the legislation. But of course, as you mentioned, I mean, in the last year of King's life, he had a 75% unfavorability rating. And so Americans did not like this man. I mean, even after he spoke out against Vietnam in 67, he lost 50% of Black support. And so you can kind of imagine when you take that into context that this was not somebody who everybody kind of held up as the mythical hero that we think of him today. They really thought of him as somebody who was divisive. They thought of him as somebody who, you know, there were conspiracy theories that he had communist ties. And this was part of the project of the FBI was really kind of doing the divide and conquer and putting these sort of disinformation campaigns out there. And so there were all these questions about if he was a worthy hero of a national holiday, which, of course, is something that takes taxpayer money. This was one of Reagan's arguments against it is, you know, it'll be too expensive. It's not worth it. But, you know, as these debates are progressing, one of the arguments I make is that they become the living roots of the collective memory. So by the time that Reagan finally has enough political pressure where he realizes it's in his best interest to just sign this into law because, the you know, Congress has the votes and it's really now up to him. It's going to look really bad if he doesn't sign it. He's going to look racist. And, you know, he's always said he doesn't really like civil rights. He never liked Dr. King. He kind of blamed King for his own demise. And so he realizes, you know, if I sign this bill into law, then for one thing, it'll kind of thwart these claims of racism, but then it'll also woo white moderates. And he's going into an election year. And so it's really a moment where he's like, okay, I'm going to sign this into law, but we're going to remember this very particular version of King. We're going to remember the parts that feel safe for my conception of America. And so it becomes the King that I think a lot of Americans think of today, which is a symbol of the American dream. Of American exceptionalism somebody who is dedicated specifically to Brotherhood and love and peace and so all of the kind of radical elements of King's Legacy get written out and that's part of the intentional political strategy
0: that was one of my favorite parts of that chapter because it was that that writing out of those that of that radicalism was it was it was like the shedding of the of of the divisive you know, portrayal of King that you see when we have people like Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms invoking the, the communist slurs that, that, that conservatives throughout the 1960s in an effort to derail the civil rights movement and how ultimately that, that, that fails. And there is, you, you see that chapter, that sort of that we're going to, you know, if we can't beat them, join them sort of thing where we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to accept him, but on our terms. And, and that gets to the, this fascinating, uh, uh, chapter that you uh then uh move on to which is you describe how it, it and I, I love your formulation the branches of king's memory about yeah. how we, we we take this individual and we take this cause with which we associate him and we almost it, it's kind of like we, we, we 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 uh split it up and, and we each we, it's, it's almost like we're, we're having a uh a, 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 you know it's like a, a will and and we're you know a, a claiming portions of it mm-hmm
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, this was one of the struggles I had going into the book was thinking about kind of a metaphor that could represent exactly how these kind of competing memories are taking place. Because, you know, theoretically, the idea was always that there's something like, you know, quote unquote, reputational trajectory, for example, the idea that memory kind of follows a trajectory and your uses of memory are shaped by the ones before. And so it looked more linear. And in the kind of the evidence that I was finding, you know, in the study, I felt like it was much more of these fragmented but intertwined uses of memory, and they were shaped relationally. So they were shaped in relationship to one another and in opposition to one another. So for me, the gnarled branches, I think, are a way to try to get at some of those tensions and then also to lay out the sort of different trajectories that the memory takes and the kind of work that they do. So, for example, you know, the two initial fractures in the trunk of the tree that I lay out are the ones where you get on one side the kind of Coretta Scott King idea of King's unfinished dream, of a legacy that's going to be carried on. And then on the other side, you get the Reagan version, the kind of colorblind individualism, the story that racism has ended. And now we are going to continue as a society who has been freed from, as he says, the burden of racism. And so these are the two kind of fractures that end up creating these different branches where, for example, through the Reagan era, you get much more of this neoliberal colorblindness branch. By the 90s, you have Americans that are really claiming that racism is over and that now the claims of civil rights are actually special rights that are only advantaging minorities. They're disadvantaging white people. And at the same time, you're getting the idea of the unfinished dream. So while conservatives are kind of reacting to the Clinton presidency, on the other side, you have minority rights groups that, you know, through the 70s, 80s and into the 90s are really claiming that their rights are like black civil rights, and they're using it to claim their own rights legally and culturally. And so this includes women and disabled people. It includes LGBTQ groups. One of the chapters that I cover is their kind of claim to being the new civil rights movement. But, you know, I think it's the reactionary piece that ends up, as I say, kind of having a stranglehold on collective memory because it is the one that upholds power. It's the one that doesn't challenge the status quo. And for obvious reasons, it's also sensationalist when right wing groups are claiming King's memory and saying that white people are the new victims and, you know, King would stand with them. These are the ones that are getting you know the front pages on the newspapers whereas the kind of uh, resistance the black communities who are fighting back and saying this is not what king wanted including you know credit scott king and now you know her daughter bernice king who leads the king center they don't get the same news coverage so media is also part of the story of how these branches take hold
0: it's interesting in how it there's a, a subtext to your book about how you know how we uh, adopt people into the, nat- into the national consciousness and how we collectively accept them, how for that acceptance to take place, uh, it seems to come out as, well, we have to focus upon the things upon which we can have some degree of agreement, and we have to leave out the parts that we don't. And part of your book is about explaining that there are these groups who appreciate King's legacy for the example he set. And and really, it's a legacy unlike any of the heroes of the national consciousness that we have before him. It's it's very unlike Washington or or Lincoln or or, or so many of these others that we've created national holidays for and that we commemorate on a yearly basis. It, It is one of pushing back against power, and and so there they're when they're seeing this happening, what I was reading in those chapters was a sense of these people saying, whoa, hold on there. You know, mm-hmm. that the, the king was not this this figure saying shut down change. He was saying we need this change and we need it as much for you know you know immigrants or we need it for Hispanics. And they're not just inventing this. As you described, uh, in particular, I was thinking in your uh, chapter about uh, immigrants' rights, there's this history. Of the uh, Chicano uh, Hispanic civil rights movement coming out of the 1960s, which was uh, which was contemporary with King, and which you know is is very much aware of that aspect of his legacy, which you are seeing these more conservative groups trying to forget.
1: Yes, and I think it's that process of forgetting that's so central because forgetting is the strategy if you can make americans forget well first of all then they're not going to be able to confront social reality and understand why racial inequality continues to exist But then it's also that they'll continue to uphold the status quo. And so it's much easier if you've forgotten to kind of treat America as if, you know, every moment is a new moment, as if the past doesn't shape the present. And I describe it as a kind of evasion of social reality that's embedded in our culture. I mean, oftentimes you'll hear folks all around the globe kind of say that Americans don't know their own history. And we kind of laugh it off. And sometimes we think it's a product of the failures of our educational system. I think that's only part of it. I think politics, and this is a global phenomenon, you'll find this in many countries, politics are always revising the past in the service of power. And that is really where the people's histories from below become so pivotal and so powerful for holding those accounts and intention and really challenging them. Because these are the living bearers of the truth of these histories. So I really think you make a great point about how King is different in that sense, in terms of a kind of national hero and a national mythology, in the sense that he is a Black American. And I do think that's part of the reason that he does get used in the service of upholding a story of American exceptionalism because there's always that danger with King as a Black American that he will remind Americans of the history of enslavement and the history of Jim Crow and the fact that all of these systems continue today. And so if we can make him feel safe, and kind of assimilate him and domesticate him into the structure that exists, then it's much easier to tell a story of him as somebody who represents, you know, kind of incrementalism, working within the system as it is, changing things slowly and patiently and with love. And I think that's, you know, one of the great dangers. If you look at any protest today, So often people will say, oh, Martin Luther King would never do that. You know, with Black Lives Matter, folks were like, Black Lives Matter is running counter to the civil rights movement. Dr. King would be so ashamed. And yet they were using the same tactics as the civil rights movement. So it's that strategic forgetting that becomes so dangerous.
0: And how it plays out is different with different movements in america and that's where i i really enjoyed the the later chapters which is it's it's not a, a it's not a broad dynamic of uh you know progressives uh you know activists seeking to invoke king's memory to to change versus uh, you know, conservative, uh, conservatives, uh, right wingers who are resisting it and 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 trying to exploit it, turn King's memory into a weapon against them. It plays out differently with when you're talking about, say, the LGBTQ movement, or you're talking about Muslim rights, or you're talking about women's rights. The dynamics are very different. That the 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 ground on which the contest takes place is different. You can you could talk about what King would have done about, say, Hispanic rights because it was a contemporary movement. Because you have the, the, the movement for gay and lesbian rights that takes place immediately after his death, that's only, that's only then when it really becomes more upfront, then the ground is different. And, and so how it takes place is different as well. I was wondering if you could perhaps maybe explain the, the, the differences in those contests and, and, and the different ways in which uh, King's memory is uh, used or, or misused uh, in, these, uh, in these various debates.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the system of power shapes all of these processes. For me, it's what explains how they're all interconnected. But you're right. Each of these chapters tells us something about a different set of symbolic boundaries, right? These are the kind of conceptual boundaries that create an imagined us versus an imagined them. And what I talk about is in the LGBTQ chapter, these are movements that are led, especially in the 90s, primarily by white Americans. And so race doesn't come into the discussion when they're challenged by predominantly white conservative family values organizations. Instead, it's the moral boundaries of memory that come up here. And what they really fight over is who is the moral authority and who gets to claim King as this kind of moral cloak. And, you know, it makes sense that, of course, LGBTQ rights movement coming up from below, the one that's in the position of less power, is the one that's saying we're the new civil rights movement, right? We're the aggrieved group. But then the opposition, the rival group on the ground, family values movement. They're, first of all, trying to discredit them. And so they're saying, well, Dr. King was a Christian and he would oppose homosexuality and he would be outraged that you are using his memory to claim that you are the new civil rights movement. So discrediting is the first part of the strategy. But what I show is as political contexts change and groups kind of innovate their strategies over time, the conservative groups wisen up. They realize that if they're going to use, our opposition is going to use the civil rights strategy, we need to claim it for ourselves. And so that's when these family values groups start claiming that they are the victims and that, you know, gay rights, for example, are an infringement on their civil liberties, on their expression of religious freedom. And that's where they start using King. I mean, we get to this point that, you know, introduces that chapter where it's Jeff Sessions speaking to a group of funders and donors and He's saying that, you know, Dr. King would stand with them in fighting for Christian rights and, and fighting for religious freedom against this kind of inside the beltway crowd who's anti-religious and anti-Christian. So it's that story of perceived victimhood that actually follows through all of these other chapters as well. And, you know, I have two chapters. One focuses on immigrant rights movement and the next focuses on the Muslim rights movement. And those stories are actually similar in the sense that both of the boundaries that come up in those are the intersection of racial boundaries and national boundaries. And so it's the question of who owns the memory, right? Who actually gets to speak for a memory that is considered American? And in both cases, one of the strategies from right-wing groups to discredit immigrants and Muslims is by calling out their identities as un-American, as a threat to America, And as beyond the boundaries of American culture. So, you cannot claim the civil rights memory, they tell immigrants, because you are not from here. And for Muslims, they say, well, you are a threat to the nation. And so, you know, they also bring up Dr. King's kind of opposition in their perceived sense to, you know, terrorism and some of these sort of global issues. So, it's really this question of, you know, not just how memory gets used, but how, who's using it. The messenger and the way that they're positioned in a system of power, how that shapes the way the memory uses play out in the public sphere.
0: There's a contrast that you uh, you mention in the book, um, but you don't feature it, which is the uh, the with Malcolm X in the sense that he is uh and i'm thinking about the the chapter in the muslim rights movement about how uh for uh muslim rights activists he's an especially relevant figure because he was not just a participant and a a key figure in the civil rights movement of king's era but he was muslim and and that was an, an integral part of his identity and it's interesting because uh Malcolm X has never had quite that same adoption to the national consciousness that King has had. And so it's interesting to see how that plays out in in, in that particular context where you're seeing, uh, I was thinking in some ways how it, it serves almost as an alternate path that King's uh, memory might have taken to where he might be, uh, you know, not quite as exploited as a weapon against the groups that are trying to invoke his memory, but at the same time, it's he's not quite as as, as uh, valuable outside that group in terms of trying to hearken to the values that he represented and how they're truly American values. Yeah,
1: no, that's absolutely right. And it's really part of the project of creating this memory of King is positioning him in opposition to Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and Black separatists. And it's this idea of the kind of safe and acceptable American collective memory positioned against that which threatens America. And so that was part of the binary that got created was this, you know, King versus X story. Which, as we've come to learn, is quite false. You know, yes, it's true that they had different ideas about how to get to the promised land. But they ultimately, you know, shared a lot more than they disagreed on. And especially near the end of King's life, they had really converged in a lot of ways. You know, King had become much more critical outspoken against the U.S. And he always said, you know, I love America and I I want her to stand as a moral example to the world. And he was always very clear about that, whereas I think, you know, Malcolm X didn't necessarily believe that America was redeemable. But I think at the, the kind of heart of the criticism, they shared a lot in terms of really wanting to change the system from the ground up. And having a kind of exhaustion with the establishment and really not having much faith that the establishment was going to do anything unless the people forced it to.
0: And so you get this wonderful opportunity, though, to take those aspects of King's legacy that you that uh, may disagree with, read them onto Malcolm X, and then kind of marginalize it and say, no, we're going to go ahead. And these are the aspects that King really stood for, you know, really in air quotes. And and, and that's going to be w- what, what we're going to use to... You know, to effectively, you know, use King against this call for 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 Muslim rights or 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 other uh, rights movements
1: precisely. Well, and that's also so interesting, too. So the Muslim rights chapter, kind of the puzzle that opens it up is this question of, you know, all of these other minority rights groups have picked up civil rights memory early on to claim rights. And the Muslim rights movement is one composed predominantly of, you know, South Asian and Middle Eastern immigrants. And they are not picking up civil rights memory. And it's this question of why, you know, why is it taking them so long to do this? They don't really pick it up until a kind of post 9-11 era. And despite the fact that they've been here, you know, since the early 80s. And so what kind of comes out is that their perception of their own identity is central to the way that they think about how they relate to American collective memory. And specifically the fact that for so long, they're trying to pursue aspirational whiteness. It's the the story of assimilation in America, is that you position yourself close to white people so that you can become white, which, you know, stands in for upwardly mobile. It doesn't mean that they actually think, you know, their skin color will change or anything, but it does mean a, a sort of symbol of upward mobility, of economic success, of being integrated into the mainstream, of being seen as American. And it's really in the post 9-11 moment as they're really bumping up against the boundaries of what it means, that they will never be seen as fully American. This is a moment when you have the Patriot Act, you have the war on terror. And I mean, I, I should say I'm Iranian American. And this is something I experienced as well, is this moment where people you have known for a very long time turn against you. And so I think it's that realization that shifts them to understanding they actually are racialized you know, despite their best efforts, they will never be seen as American or even as analogous to white. And that becomes a bridge because once they realize that, they start situating themselves within the racialized past, which in America, you know, the history of Muslims in America is the history of black Muslims. And Malcolm X does become this powerful figure. Like this is when they start picking up civil rights memory and saying, we need to be radical like the civil rights movement. And using Malcolm X's quotes, and it just becomes a really powerful way for them to also build bridges with Black Americans who they have neglected and in many ways been in opposition to for so long. So I think that for me is one of the beauties of collective memory is that as much as it kind of creates these boundaries and in so many ways forecloses the opportunities to see one another, it can also be expansive It can also have these porous boundaries where it lets people in and becomes a vision that's global and really embedded in these solidarities.
0: Now, your book is about, uh, on one level, about how King's memory has been used over the past 40 years, but it's very much a book about the present. And your final chapter, you talk about uh, the consequences uh, uh, for America today of such usages, and it's one that... yeah, builds quite nicely off uh, the the penultimate chapter, which is about uh, King's role in the women's rights movement, which uh, has a, a special uh, relevance in terms of Me Too and 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 you know what's what's been going on since then. So, what do you see as the the the, the consequences of this, and, and really why it is that this is such an important uh, question we should be considering, and why it is that that this is a question that that will probably be looming over us for 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 years to come.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the main points I really want to drive home is that invoking King's memory in distorted ways, you know, these sort of ideas of revisionist history, they're not just rhetorical tools. You know, we shouldn't just write them off as kind of something that's troublesome, something that just represents, you know, the shifting American discourse. These are tools that have had severe consequences for our society and for our democracy. And so one of the major consequences is that these revisionist histories have been used in the service of eroding multicultural democracy. So even as early as Reagan, King's words were being used to roll back civil rights. So the idea that King would have supported colorblindness, which in this sense meant not talking about race, right, not granting, quote unquote, special rights to minority groups. This was used to justify repealing, you know, civil rights across housing and education, across the justice system. And it's culminated in the recent repeal of affirmative action. And, you know, about a decade ago, repealing that critical piece of the Voting Rights Act, which, as we've seen, has had these incredibly detrimental consequences. And so I think that's the, the kind of most concrete takeaway that I think we really should pay attention to. But I think beyond that, for me, it's a question of how this revisionist history changes our capacity to see one another. So we talk all the time about political polarization and, you know, why is it that the left and the right can't speak to each other? Well, I think it's much more complex than that. I think it's much more a story of the establishment of power and how that takes on this kind of divide and conquer mentality and uses collective memory as a tool. It's a wedge. And so, you know, one of the things I show throughout the book is how those in power, especially from right-wing groups, We'll use the collective memory of the civil rights movement to draw wedges between Black and other minority groups. And it'll be a way to come down and say, for example, that, you know, immigrants are trying to claim a collective memory that's yours, but they take your jobs. Right. So this is one of the strategies. And it's intentional. Right. The paperwork is there. You know, there's all these behind the scenes documents where they say very explicitly this is the strategy for making sure that these groups on the ground who are equally suffering do not come together and garner political power. So I think the fragmentation through collective memory is also something we should really pay attention to. And then I think the third piece, which is the piece that I'm really passionate about, is that I think this politics that's so committed to the status quo that devises a collective memory that upholds the way things have always been, ensuring that things will always be the way that they've been, it lacks creativity. It really sucks all of the air out of the room. And it has a kind of stranglehold on our political imagination. It makes us believe that nothing else is actually possible. And I I think that's really one of the pieces I hope that my own students will take away is to try to think broader and think about the other histories that are not being told, that are not being remembered and how they might give us clues as to other things that might be possible in the future.
0: Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah. So I think I'm working on a couple of things, but the most closely related project coincidentally thinks about truth and reconciliation initiatives, but in the United States. And so this is a project that I've just kind of picked up. And for me, it's this question of, you know, can we come together at a grassroots level, confront our community histories, dig into all of their messiness and find that as a route for creating these bridges to maybe come together in the future?
0: Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I look forward to seeing it when uh, you've completed it.
1: Thank you. Me too.
0: Izita, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks, Mark.